Goody camp blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. Never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front. These are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're talking about Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. This is Bra, co-host of Now Playing. This is Arnie. Stuart from L.A. Fantastic. And today we are discussing The New Blood, which is a lot like The Old Blood. We um, start off this movie with something we haven't started off the movie before, with a voiceover. And the voiceover, isn't that Ralph from the old movies doing that voiceover? Was it? I did not pick that up. That uses flashbacks. And what's interesting about it is we haven't seen this flashback before. Well, it's also a place we've never seen before. Although it picks up right with Jason where we left him, Jason at the bottom of the lake chained, his surroundings have mysteriously become transformed from a campground to a summer house. <laughs> and I'm not sure how that happened, but I feel like this whole series has actually been picked up and dragged and dropped into a whole nother genre or something. It really felt like the new blood was really doing a new thing. I agree, because when we last saw Jason, Tommy had returned him to the lake at Camp Crystal Crystal Lake Lake or Forest Green, whatever it was called (laughs) in part six. And he was only like five feet off the dock, which is not the best place to put an undead, merciless killer in my mind, because, you know, the kids are going to be swimming and their lake's not that deep. He could just reach up, grab one, (laughs) eat him for breakfast and continue on like, you know, the McDonald's of camp kids. And now right off that same pier, there's housing, summer homes. I'm confused. Movie stars. Yeah. Maybe perhaps they did one. You know how they can relocate houses? Maybe they relocated the lake? But that couldn't be because, well, if it is, then the flashback takes place in 1980-whatever, and then we jump 15 years, 10 years into the future. I mean, where is this time frame even happening? I, I don't even think we've caught up in our present time with where this series is now. Maybe they could have called it, instead of the new blood, the reboot, or we're going to do whatever we damn please. I found a website. It's FridayThe13thFilms.com, right. which has done our research for us because we've been sitting here speculating at each of these movies, when in the hell did this happen? <laughs> and we only have a few dates to go off of, and we're kind of guessing. Well, it is saying that the new blood... All takes place in 1993, having done all of the math from the dates. So this flashback has to be in the early 80s. So this movie, released in 1988, takes place in the future. But all, this, yeah. but all the clothing and technology are from the present day when it was filmed. And like Brigadoon, every once in a while, <laughs> Tina's house comes out of the fog to be in the campground and then disappears. Wow, I love it you brought Brigadoon into a Friday the 13th conversation. (laughs) Well, let's be honest. The filmmakers are setting these movies in the year they're released, and they don't give a shit about continuity. apparently not. And anything else. They want five years to have passed. 
this movie could not be taking place in 1993 because in 1993 they'd all be wearing flannel and listening to Nirvana. <laughs> Instead, they are still very much in the period of hair metal. Oh, yeah. So oh, wow. in 1993, they'd have all had CD Walkmans. In this movie, they're still using cassettes. Correct. So there is a real issue with the time. But if you have to have that, then, yeah, we're in the 90s. So we're in the flashback. Did that little girl scream Carol Ann? Carol Ann. Stuart, I know you said in the last one you thought Carol Ann. This girl had the bangs. This girl had, had the, the voice. Look. And, and, yeah. it was, and it was also kind of tasteless because didn't the girl just die at this time? I thought, like, when I saw Carol Ann, I was like, wait a minute. This movie came out, like, in 88, and that girl just passed away. And like, oh, my God, why would they possibly use a girl who looks like this? But I just felt it was really almost in poor taste, but could have been a complete coincidence. She was a Carol Ann ripoff for sure, and I'm I'm willing to bet that by the time they wrapped on this, Heather O'Rourke, the actress that played Carol Ann, was probably not dead because I agree, you probably wouldn't want people to remember the heroine of a movie serial that just died. I agree. Heather O'Rourke died in February of '88. This movie came out in '88, so it had to have wrapped in '87. So, so they, they probably know. were shitting themselves. Yes, but this series is always lifted from other popular genres movies and they wanted to have a little bit of poltergeist in here and they wanted to have a lot of Carrie in here as yes. well. Well, while we're talking about Carrie, while we're talking about the opening scene with the poltergeist girl, let's just call it out. Psychic powers. Yes. The girl is a reject from Firestarter. <laughs> Or The Shining, or Carrie, or any Stephen King paranormal activity you choose. I'm actually specifically thinking Firestarter, because there's that period where they go to the building with all of the psychics, and they all have the different powers, and mm -hmm. they're hospitalized there. So this girl could have fit very well in, because she can start fires, she can see the future, she can see the past, but in other places. So she's just all right. around psychic. Right. She's telekinetic. Yes. And she could raise the dead. Well, what's remarkable is that like, she can use her mind power to do anything she's thinking about. So it's like kind of like Jean Grey, right? Sort of? I yeah. actually thought she was very much like a Jedi. Oh. Because she's, really? she can throw things with her mind. She can see the past, the future. Yeah. The fire thing, maybe not so much, but she only starts one fire and it's on a book of matches. Well, again, I thought that her temper flared, which is why the matches flared. Mm -hmm. Well, the dark right. side. Yeah. Oh, okay. If you really <laughs> want to go to the Jedi angle there, you can. I don't know any Jedi who kills her father by collapsing a dock, but you know. Well, he's abusive. He's well, an abusive drunkard. Yeah, but he was hitting his mother and calling the kid in, right, to uh -huh. get her turn. Yes. And then she rest, spends the rest of the movie feeling Morning guilty yeah. because she killed her dad. And, and I then just, the dad is the ultimate savior at the end. Well, I was going to save that. But yes, we could talk about that later because I got some stuff to talk about there. But if you're talking about the dad's story arc, I the, felt the that The dad that has important. a great story arc here, yes. I just found... So we're watching this movie, and last movie, Jason gets resurrected by a bolt of lightning. And as we talked about in the last podcast, go with it. Okay, bolt of lightning, gets him back. But I find myself looking at this, like last time with the bolt of lightning, like, psychic powers? Really? I mean, really? They ripped it off from me, I'm telling you. My Friday the 13th, part 7, was a psychic 
story. I wrote right after part six, I wrote a movie, a sequel for myself. And as a kid, that was big. That was huge. You can't underplay how important it was to be psychic or telekinetic when you were a kid. That was my dream power. I wanted to be able to make stuff fly across the room and do all of that kind of stuff. When the remote's just out of reach. I do, thinking of Jedi, do the Empire Strikes Back, reaching for the lightsaber for my remote every once in a while. Never works. Yeah, exactly. There was in everything from Escape the Witch Mountain to, to Jedi to what have you. Uh, kids had powers, and I felt left out. So, of course, in my Friday the 13th saga, I'm going to be, my family relocates there, and I'm going to be psychic, and I'm going to be using my telekinetic powers to battle Jason. That was actually my premise. I hope you're still getting the royalties, because I just bought this <laughs> DVD, so you deserve a few pennies there. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would get any pennies from the royalties off of this movie. I don't know that this was certainly a series on the wane. I feel like at this point that they were getting closer and closer to dumping the Friday the 13th series, at least Paramount, the the company that started it. And, you know, I would like to point out, too, that it's in different hands, and and each movie is made by a different director, but they went with somebody, his director, his name escapes me, but he was more famous for making these really low-budget horror horror movies than he was slasher movies and that influence is apparent he made the ghoulies movies and troll and just some of these movies about these little monster kind of things and this one felt like they were going for something they were it was stark gone was the comedy from the last movie and we're now watching somebody try to create a scary jason in a scary environment again Part six was the lowest grossing sequel to Friday the 13th that had happened. And I blame part five for that. People Mm. saw part five, did not want to go back for part six. But since part six did so poorly, then they're trying something new with part seven. (laughs) I hate to use the phrase jump the shark, but does this jump the shark by introducing a psychic girl? This was for me a jump the shark movie. It really was because the psychic powers just did it in for me. I, I don't understand why a bolt of lightning makes more sense to me than a psychic power. I really don't get why okay. my brain works that way. Are you thinking that the psychic power brought Jason back to life? Is this what you're thinking? She resurrects Jason no, using her psychic I, power. Here's how I read it. Her psychic power stirred up the lake to the point that Jason's shackles broke. Because Jason never died in part six. He was merely trapped. Her psychic powers in trying to raise her father broke his shackles he's just been sitting there you know bored waiting he never died in part seven i did not get that i was wondering how his chains fell off i was actually thinking to myself wow he has the strength to pull off the chains now that he's awake see i just figured she broke the chains and he's like finally the fucking chains are gone i'm gonna go kill some people oh i thought i I think arnie is is right that was the way that i took it i think he might have been like dormant like sleeping like if you're not able to get up you might be like kind of napping or something yeah i got that he woke up and the chains fell off and he's like oh great and he when he emerges from here speaking of jason i feel whatever you want to say negative about this film and and there's plenty to say (laughs) i felt like this may be the best jason or at least my favorite iteration of jason really well this is the first time 
Kane Hodder, who is associated with that Jason role, when you think of an actor, he is to Jason what Robert England is to Freddy for the most part. He's the only actor to reprise the role of Jason. He handles it from part seven, which I think is an inauspicious start, all the way through Jason X. Mm. Yeah, he's kind of like the Timothy Dalton. He might have been a good Bond, but he came at the wrong time. (laughs) it It just didn't, nobody wanted to watch him, you know? Okay. You said this might be the best Jason ever. I found him a very menacing Jason. But in addition, one of the reasons I had problems with this movie and thought it jumped the shark was not only did I apparently incorrectly think he was resurrected by psychic powers. Well, I can see where you'd think it, though. Thank you. He was imbibed with superhuman amazing strength. He has always been strong, but he had the most amazing superpower strength this time. And my example of that being he picks up a sleeping bag with a human being and slams it against a tree as if trying to get dust out of a rug. That is a great death. Too. It was a wonderful death. I thought it was awesome. And I love it flashed to her dead body on the ground and she's still holding it up so she doesn't show her naked body. Her hand is still holding the sleeping bag. I thought that was really funny. But I thought it was death. a betrayal of his aesthetic, though. I mean, he is all about impaling and slashing. And he decided to beat somebody down felt thuggish. (laughs) And I just, okay, agreed. So I was like, how on earth can he do that? The whole thing to me seemed like this Jason was like super Jason. Okay, I'm sorry, but before he was a zombie, Jason picked a guy up off the ground by his head probably a 150, 180 pound guy, and then proceeded to still have the strength to crush his skull so the eye popped out. I understand that. I watched the movie, and I love the wire popping out of the eye, but. But this guy took her and not only picked her up, but swung around like a baseball bat, like he was in the batter's box, just whacking the thing against the tree. Well, now he's a zombie, so he's even stronger. That's what I'm saying. He's just really strong. Well, what do you have to do if you're trapped under the water for a few years, except work out your upper body strength? I would think maybe ponder his purpose in life, maybe settle down and, you know, have like a calling they do in prison. Maybe they always talk about having a breakthrough about, oh, maybe I was doing these things wrong. Correspondent courses? In the water. Yeah. Maybe the (laughs) fish can have it for him. I'm just saying that the whole thing was just this one didn't work for me let me tell you what i liked about this jason please i loved the look of this jason because one thing that i'd never noticed before i haven't watched these movies really with a close eye since ever i'm now watching these movies as a critic instead of just as a bloodlusting fan (laughs) one thing that is really astounding to me is while there's no continuity in dates at all And there's no continuity in certain things, starting with, I'd say, part three, the evolution of Jason's decomposition has very much followed. He lost his eye in part four. He never got that eye back. Here we are in part seven. He's still missing that eye. Mm -hmm. The end of part six, a boat motor goes up to his face and it takes away part of the hockey mask right here we have jason he's still missing that bit of the hockey mask i could so see especially on a cheap sequel that they think nobody's gonna pay attention to this shit you'd put a whole hockey mask but they've got that missing and he's decomposed in a different way when they dug him up in part six he was maggot food now he's kind of like I don't know if you guys ever fished. I lived in Florida, did a lot of fishing. He's like the chum. Right. At the, you know? And he's got some bone poking through, and he's got some skeletalness to his face. You could actually see part of his face from that missing mask. He has squishiness in his hands, like that gooey stuff. Yeah, and like some hands. bone poking through. In the whole movie, he's... 
when he yeah, walks. He's squishy the whole time. And he, you can the whole see movie. the spinal cord in the back because he's eroded like yeah. a dead fish. That was that was the best part is when he comes out of the lake and you see him from the back and you yeah. see his whole like rib cage and spine and all of that. I was like, oh, and that's what I mean. Now I really finally get his imposing scariness. And I agree with you. He was very scary and he looked really great. I'm not just agreeing with you how awesomely scary and menacing he was, considering after the last one where I wanted more menace. I got a great Jason here in the menace department. I just felt that he was just too strong. That's all. Yeah, well, if he had been this strong, he never would have drowned to begin with. Like, if he was a strong swimmer, we wouldn't even have these movies. But I'm not sure. I think Part 9 will address some of this supernatural conundrum about who Jason is and why he has the strength. In a very oblique way, yes. Yes. This is Kane Hodder, and they really say that he gave Jason some personality and things. I don't know. I thought the guy who did it in part six was pretty good. And I really thought that the Jason characteristics of he doesn't run. He just stalks and everything. That was all established by Roy. Roy had the work jumpsuit, the pantsuit or whatever it is. Roy had the stalking. So Jason saw Roy and went, wow, that's pretty tough. I'm going to do that when I rise from the dead. You know, it's funny you mentioned that he just walks after her. What I find really interesting about this movie is when people ran away from him, he just stalked after them. And I quickly thought of Pepe Le Pew when Pepe Le Pew... The cat would like run away really fast, and then he just goes doop 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 and hops around, and finally just catches up. The whole time I thought Pepe Le Pew. They totally ripped off Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> <laughs> and you think about it, the guy's in the bottom of a lake. He must have really reeked. I mean, you would have to think that they would smell him coming before he actually mm-hmm. got anywhere near them. But that's just a. A side note, honestly, he probably reeked a high heaven. I totally agree with you. It's You know, it reminded me of, too, is having been a, a horror aficionado, was Creepshow. You remember that one, Arnie? Where the, the fourth chapter, there's a Ted Danson and some girl are, are drowned and they come back as water zombies. Yes, and the tide comes in. Yeah, I got a little bit of that here, too. I think they squished, too. Here's the thing that bothered me. All right, in the last movie... Jason has killed the entire Forest Green police force. <laughs> yep. And he's killed all the camp counselors in very bloody ways. He exploded one in a camp room, which was great. There's heads everywhere. But you got Tommy Jarvis from a mental institution there. When the state police come to try to clean up this mess, aren't they going to get the body of the killer out of the lake? Because I'm sure Tommy and Tommy's girlfriend, the police chief's daughter there, are saying it was Jason, it was Jason. Is nobody going to get Jason out of this lake, just leave Jason there? Hmm. Did he kill everyone who tried because he's just down there and awake? I mean, why is Jason still there? I pointed this out before, and they don't go in the lake. It's like you could drop a million dollars in a suitcase down there and be like, oh, it's gone. <laughs> like, nobody ever goes into the lake, and I don't understand why. Like, particularly with all the bodies and mothers and, and children and this and that. Like, drain that thing. It's not, it's, it's not even that deep. It's not even that deep. They actually called this camp Crystal Lake again, didn't yes, they? Yes, the forest mm, green. They, they went back the to it. So the, yep. the continuity thing again is just gone out the window. It does feel like they're floundering for what to do. It feels like you talk about this being a jump the shark moment. I felt like part five was that moment. They tried something. It totally didn't work. And ever since part five, they've been trying to figure out how do we get it back. Maybe you're right about that. Like, we, how do we get our magic? We'll bring Jason back. We'll do this. We'll throw in a psychic. We'll do the, you know. We keep talking about our psychic. We can talk about Carrie and Firestarter and all the obvious influence. But really what I felt like they were doing, it, when you look at the timeline, this movie came out in 88. What came out in 87? 
Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which I think anybody would tell you is the best of that series. Yeah, I would. And that had kids who had superpowers. They learned how to harness their dream power, and they actually were able to go one-on-one with Freddy Krueger. And that was a part of that appeal, was watching that world. And I felt like they were grabbing at that. Like, how do we find someone that's an equal for Jason? We tried it with Tommy, and that wasn't enough. So now we're going to have this supernatural character to take on our classic supernatural character. I would argue, though, that they really, really should have recast her. The girl that they cast as Tina has none of it. She doesn't have the like fragile sympathy of like Sissy Spacek. She's not tough. She's not. She's just a drip. Everywhere she goes, she brings everybody down. You know what I mean? Like I just, I found her totally unappealing, and I felt like you would have been able to pull off this high concept. It's Jason versus Carrie kind of thing. If you had had a female protagonist, you actually cared about and wanted to root for. I completely agree because she was poorly acted and poorly written Mm -hmm. because the actress was doing the best she could I think with the material of being a right out of the mental institution again teen with psychic powers and tormented by her shrink but she goes next door to a party and she's like flipping out and spilling beer you know she's a spaz party foul to use the 80s term for her spaz yeah And yet there's still this guy that's remarkably attracted to her. And you needed to give us a moment about why he would actually be hitting on this girl because there is nothing appealing about her. Did you see the vapid bitches at his cabin? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I think that was was the strategy. It was like if we make everyone else more contemptible, then (laughs) she looks good by comparison because it's the late 80s now. So you're really getting some of the ugliest fashion of the 80s. And like there's this girl with the shoulder pads and the pearls and all of that and talking about her father's money and i'm like oh well we she know reminded me point. of the girl from 16 candles actually mm-hmm. i was thinking of blair from facts of life yeah there you go although again back to the sin you've got the geek girl which is yes and her sin is she tarts herself up she doesn't actually even do anything she just takes off the glasses puts on some makeup and a nice short killed. skirt mm-hmm. and i was thinking in the background they should have played you're the one that i want you are on the one i want because <laughs> <laughs> and then flown away in a flying car yes <laughs> We brought up Brigadoon last time, now I'm bringing up Grease. <laughs> Peppy Le Pew, we're all over the place. <laughs> but that's because this series is all over the place. Ooh, nice transition. And really, and you know, we're talking about the killings, but the killings feel so perfunctory at this point. At this point, it really feels like there's nothing invested in these characters that are being killed off. Like, the thing that they care about, the thing that this director cares about is the psychic and her powers and the battle and, and all the killings and the slashings and all that He can't be bothered. None of us. I found none of that interesting at all. Really? They were just there for the body count. Right. Yeah, it really was. And it was that cold. It was just cold. The characters were so interchangeable. Agreed. And I really had trouble when certain characters would walk on the screen. I'd be like, oh, they're still here. You know, I forgot that they had one scene earlier to establish their character before they died. Yeah. Yeah. Only killed I really find remarkable off the top of my head right now as we're talking about it was the party horn. To the eye. <laughs> My favorite one since the road flare in the mouth. I thought that was great. Uh-huh. Well, here's yeah. the thing. They ran out of stereotypes because they had the geek. Mm-hmm. They had the bitch. They had the stoner. And then they had two black people who were just normal. The only thing about them is they were black. 
but yeah. they had a couple of other normal people floating around. It was there like, was, yeah, there was not enough variance there. Yeah, they needed maybe. like someone that was break dancing or something. Or... <laughs> had a big boombox to his ear, rocking around. But you know, that's the thing about the late '80s. When we talk about the '80s, everyone wants to talk about the things going on in like '84. What was what going on in 1988? We were just hair waiting metal. for the '80s to die and bring in grunge in the '90s. Well, you had hair metal and you had. Movies. I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. The, uh... and sweaters tied around your shoulders. Which, oh, when I saw that look, I was like, oh god, it's awful, awful. All right, let's talk about the doctor. Who, in case you didn't notice, and I'm going to say it just like Andrew McCarthy, it's Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> which I did again, not I did, I did not know Horshack, and I did not know it was Bernie. This is the first time I missed an '80s staple in these movies i did not know it was burning well he didn't have the mustache or the sunglasses yeah or the windbreaker and in this movie he wasn't the reanimated dead one it was jason but Mm -hmm. hey good point Maybe maybe got his character motivation for Bernie by being in this movie. I think that's why they cast him in Bernie. He was just so good with the corpses. Because <laughs> God knows he wasn't good with the psychic patient. So was he, this in the 80s? I'm trying to remember my psychological history, but was it in the 70s where nobody talked about mental illness and then ordinary people came out? And then in the early 80s, shrinks were good, but then they became demonized in the late 80s where all shrinks were evil. And then the 90s, everyone went on Prozac and just didn't care anymore. An 80s movie staple was someone complaining about all oh, my shrink calling him a head shrinker and things like that so i think in towards the late 80s there was definitely a negative connotation in the popular culture media stuff about psychiatrists totally yeah and you saw it they became a classic arch villain in like horror movies poltergeist 3 i remember being so annoyed in that movie because carol ann kept talking about the ghost preacher that was coming after her and for half the movie there was a psychiatrist saying it's all in your mind it's all in your mind it is a way of inserting a character that is instantly detestable and he had ulterior motives too he didn't even care about the girl which i thought was an interesting and albeit obvious character motivation thing for the character. But I honestly felt they didn't even need that. Well, can I go back and say again, Firestarter ripoff? Because at Firestarter, you got the bald guy who I'm forgetting the actor's name, but I know he's somebody who pretends to be Drew Barrymore's friend, you know, pretends to be the orderly when in fact he's the person who's working for the government trying to get all these superpowered people to go kill the Russians. I've never seen this one. So. Ah. I don't think I ever saw Firestarter start to finish. Yeah. I remember when George C. Scott shows that's up. Him. That's him. George C. It. Scott pretends to be Drew Barrymore's friend and pretends to just be an orderly when he runs the whole institution. Oh. And he's like, why don't you try this? And then maybe they'll help you let your father go. Pretending to be her friend so that they can really encourage her powers when, in fact, it's a mind fuck. So it's very, again, right out of the Firestarter playbook. Later on, the established, he's not a nice guy. She sees Jason and he throws a spike at her into the door. And then when he challenges her to go out and see the spike in the door, and there's no spike in the door. And yet she doesn't point out, but there's an indentation where the spike was. There's a big okay. hole. Yeah, you don't see that in the camera angle, but she doesn't No, point you that. do, because they put their finger in the hole. She does say that? No, she's like, it was here, and then she runs off, oh. but then they, like, see the hole, and they're they putting their finger in the okay. hole. Because I, I must have blinked or something, because I missed it. But then they... Well, it was a boring movie, I understand. Maybe, you know, I just, like, I looked away for a moment and missed that amazing plot point. <laughs> so then they show the spike in the drawer later on. So my question is, what exactly is he trying to do at that point? 
Is he trying to drive her even more crazy for his own means? How would that help him and his cause? Because when she's emotional, she has the powers. When she's calm, she doesn't. So the more heightened her emotions, the more scared she is, the more upset she is, the more he can heighten her emotions, the more she will display the psychic power and he can make a billion dollars publishing his paper. I understand you're saying, Arnie, but I thought that move was counterproductive to what he was doing. But then again, maybe I'm just bringing too much logic into a movie that does not value such things. It's not really well formulated what Dr. Cruz hopes to accomplish by secluding Tina and her mother in a cabin where their father was killed by her and channeling all that rage, then what? Okay, so now she's going to be like tearing up the place or possibly hurting you, and what are you gonna do about that? I mean, it wasn't very clear. Did he not remember that it was that rage that actually killed her own father? Like, I would think that that's like playing with fire. That's well, like... let's get to that. Jason kills the shrink instead of the psychic girl. Don't you think the psychic girl who's already killed her father should kill the shrink? Um, no, it's Jason's supposed to kill everybody. It is Jason's movie at the end. But maybe an accidental thing or something, but... You know, when the shrink got killed, I think all of us were like, finally Jason kills somebody we want to see dead. As opposed to all these other characters we never care about, or even the one character in the last movie where I didn't want to die, the police chief. This time, it's a guy whose death is justified. That was a nice, nice thing. Yeah, it is like Jason as Judge Wapner or something like that. It feels like that thing where he's like, yeah, you put him in his place. You know, it started to feel judgmental. Okay, we know who the bad people are and Jason's going to take care of it. And that's why we like Jason. He's able to put the machete in the people we don't like. There's one other Jason death before we get to the showdown I want to ask about. Jason uses a power tool, has a gasoline engine, and he pulls the ripcord. What is that? Is that a weed whacker? Because I, I think, think it's a saw I think blade. So. It's like a hedge clipper thing. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I'm wondering where you get the big saw blade at the end of a weed whacker. If that's a real lawn implement, can I go buy this? It seems very dangerous. I think it's cut off branches off high trees, right? Yeah. And Jason using power tools just doesn't work for me. How does he know what a ripcord is? Yeah, it, it doesn't feel right. It does feel like you don't need this. I could see him taking it and not turning it on and shoving it through someone. But when you see Jason pull the ripcord, it takes me out of it. It's like, ah, he's, yeah. Did he fill up the gas first? I mean, did he check the gasoline to oil ratio? How in-depth did Jason go with his mechanical knowledge? Well, you're hung up on that. I think the thing that I got hung up, (laughs) small detail, but kind of like, heh, was they have one of those famous girl in Jeopardy, she's wandering around. It's one of these anonymous people that are going to get killed. I don't remember even who it is. And she's upstairs in the bedroom, and she opens the door, and a cat pops out. And she goes, oh, it's your cat. You know, we all know that cliche. But I'm like... There has never been any cat. I thought I just in this house. They all drove there. You're telling me he drove a cat. Like there was no cat box. There was no. I'm like, this cat must have been there for years in the house. <laughs> like like Brigadoon. The cat is just you know waiting to come to life for his uh, his one moment, and then is never seen again. So finally, we have our prerequisite body count, and we get to the showdown of Carrie versus Jason. Yeah. Let's bum, talk bum, about bum. that, shall we? Let's talk about that a little bit. Why don't you talk about the battle first? I'll chime in. This is when I started to think Jedi. Before this, I always thought Carrie, but when she's throwing televisions at Jason, it reminded me of that scene in Empire Strikes Back where Luke is getting hit with all the boxes. Mm-hmm. 
The only thing that I thought kind of worked out of it was the tree branches, which was obviously an Evil Dead ripoff. <laughs> totally. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I expected one to go in a bad place for Jason, which would have happened, I think, in part six. Part seven lost the humor. Well, you know, the one that amused me is very impersonal. They just move from room to room to room. But at some point, someone's severed head was in a planter. I just like this <laughs> potted plant. And that she actually lifted up this potted plant and you have this strange image of this plant with a head on it flying at Jason and hitting him. I'm like, this is It's a decapitated headbutt. <laughs> Amazing. I couldn't believe that. I'm like, that was ridiculous. It was the only time this chapter even got close to humor. You know, like, I was like, ah, they're finally telling a joke here. This is a good one. <laughs> I, you know what I did like? I actually thought it was cool when she ripped his mask off with her psychic powers. Yes, and we absolutely. see his face. Very the cool. face, unfortunately, I didn't think worked. It looked too plasticky. Yeah. I liked it much better when it was a hint of that teeth. But once you saw the face, I'm like, oh, it's one of Tommy's rubber masks. <laughs> yeah, it looked fake, but I thought it was a really cool thing. I agree. Yeah, it yeah. was a great way to do it and to break the mask. You know, yeah, it's gone. Cool. But to get it back to the Dream Warriors thing I was talking about. So it ends up in the basement of this house. And indeed, she turns on the furnace on him and sets him on fire. And That a... really ripped. I felt it was a ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 where yeah. Nancy is in the basement of the house, douses Freddy with gasoline, lights him on fire, and then runs out of the basement. Yeah, it was totally Nightmare on Elm Street. And then the whole house blows up. Why did the house blow up? <laughs> I, is it just because it's the 80s that the house blew up? Had to blow up, man. I mean, really, <laughs> they're like, run to the dock. I'm like, why? The house is just going to burn down. And then the house fucking Boom. explodes. I'm like, what? There was no natural gas. It was a furnace. Where- the only thing they were missing was like the leaping away with balls of fire behind them. Yes. Kind of slow motion shot. Exactly. And it would have been lethal weapon. I'm just like... Huh, I didn't see that. And then they don't even try to explain it. Jason got out of the house somehow, and he's still there, and the battle continues, and I'm just like, I I don't understand. Here's the thing. You have to have a hero. I agree. You were talking in part six, Stuart, about how Tommy Jarvis sets up the hero to root for against Jason. In this movie, there was no sense of suspense because I felt like they were evenly matched or if anything, the telekinetic had the advantage because Jason, he's not good at long distance kills. You're right. She feels tougher than him because she can do extraordinary things, and he's still bound by the physics of reality. I mean, I'm thinking in Carrie, she's flipping cars. Once this bitch gets going, she can bring down houses and roofs, just lift Jason up. Right, exactly. You just tear him limb from limb, draw and quarter him. I mean, it is. It's it's unevenly matched. In Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy has those kinds of powers. With this one, it's like once she gets going, we suddenly feel like the monster is not an equal match, and it just becomes inevitable, which is why I feel like the end-end and how he actually is taken care of comes so bizarre. I gotta chime in on this one, because for me, this we've watched a lot of crazy things in these movies. This one completely did not work for me to the point where I want to say, I'm done. Because the father comes out of the lake, not decomposed, brand spanking new like he died yesterday to get Jason, because she obviously this time got it right and found her father under the lake. Earlier in the movie, she couldn't find him and found Jason instead, and of course I thought her emotions weren't heightened enough. Oh, I see. So (laughs) then she was able to use her like GPS for under the water and find her dad this time. But if we have this whole thing of Jason being all sludgy in the beginning of the movie, coming out of the lake, being there for a couple of years, her dad's in there for what, five, six years, and he's perfectly formed? He's absolutely fine? Like he went in there for an hour go for a dip it makes 100% zero sense now I understand this movie is full of crazy things and crazy people and crazy characters and all these kind of things that could not happen but it's inconsistent 
I know this won't make you feel any better, but they had planned on decomposing him and the effects just didn't work out, so they just brought the actor back and did it that way. And if they did it that way, I'm not sure we would have recognized who it was. As it was, as he was popping out, I mean, it takes, they do it in slow motion, and it takes me a good six seconds to figure out what I'm looking at. I'm like, who is this? (laughs) We never even really get to see that guy. That flashback in the beginning is so quick and low lit and he's not really shown. It was the jacket and the hair that tipped me off that it was him. Yeah. And yes, this is the man who was beating the mother and calling the daughter in, and he to saves her at the end. And that whole thing aside, is it fair to say that I was like disappointed? Because I really... It's a cop-out. I really did not. And they're going for the whole jumping out of the like thing again. I mean, all these parallel things that just don't work. And I know I'm the noob. I know I'm the guy who is new to this whole thing. I've been drinking a lot of Kool-Aid up to now, okay? I am now putting my glass down and saying, I can't give you this one, guys. I can't do it. Let me tell you how I always saw it, and now I'm not so sure. Again, the way I always thought the telekinetic broke the chains, I thought, like, she was puppet mastering the father into grabbing Jason and pulling him back under. But, I mean, it's so illogical and ill-planned and ill-executed that it doesn't even deserve an excuse. And they didn't fish his body out of the lake either. They're no, like you leave it. He fell in. It's gone. You know, what's interesting about it, you could actually say that she made him spontaneously generate. Like, because she has so many different kinds of psychic yeah. powers for this movie, she actually has the ability to float things, to see the future, see the past, to, like, see what Jason's seeing as Jason's seeing it, to the point where, like, she sees her boyfriend's cousin get killed in her mind and i'm glad that cousin carries a picture of his cousin in his wallet very convenient i have about 96 cousins i have a very thick wallet. my wallet's very thick it's like a stanza wallet so all that stuff aside you could say that she made a figure a corporal figure of her father jump out but that's giving them a lot of slack and i can't do it i'm sure they didn't imply that i'm sure they're saying the actual father comes out but if you want to spin it, that's what I'm like. I'm on the other way of it, though. I'm kind of with you in that if you look at all of the things that have jumped out of the lake, pretty <laughs> much I've written them all off as dream sequences. Jason in the first one jumps out. I did some reading after the fact. They incorporated that as a dream sequence. It never really happened, which explains why Jason is fully grown in part two. I see. Then the mother jumps out of the lake. Another dream sequence. I kind of pictured this as the psychic girl's been knocked around and she gets knocked out here. I think she had a head injury. Maybe she just collapsed the dock again. And in her mind, she saw her father rise up. Yet another dream sequence of something jumping out of the lake. The only thing that's not a dream when it jumps out of the lake is fully grown seven foot Jason. Mm-hmm. The ending is so conclusive, though. Unlike usually in these horror films where we get a final gotcha moment of like, oh, he's not really dead or ha 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 ha. This one really is like she's handled her problems. They're hauling him away on stretchers. I don't even know why the boyfriend's being hauled away on a stretcher. I don't think any of them sustain any physical injuries, really. But apparently they can't walk and they're being called away. And he's like... What are we going to do about Jason? She's like, I've taken care of it. And indeed, they don't cut to the lake where you see an eyelid open and, you know, nothing. Like, that's the end. Well, I felt like that we already had our second gotcha because we thought he blew up in the house. Right. And then they were starting to give us a false ending. And then he shows up on the dock and mm-hmm. then it's over. What I loved is at the end, she's like, Nick, where's Nick? And it was just such a callback to the end of part two. Where's Paul? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. Don't tell me we're not going to know what happened to Nick. And then we get in the ambulance and there's Nick. And I'm like, ah, oh, uh, thank God. <laughs> 
I'm not sure even if they wanted to have a gotcha moment, what would that look like? A dead phantom father clutching Jason under the water? I mean, that just that wouldn't look scary. It would look like something, but I'm not sure here is what it would conjure. Oh, more erotic underwater zombies? <laughs> the water ballet. Yeah, it's like a ballet. great movie I want to write. Homo erotic underwater zombie love. <laughs> Excellent. Let me add one last point. For all of this movie, I was bored. For psychic powers and bitchy 80s teens and blood and a woman getting smashed in a sleeping bag, this movie should work. This should be the best of the series for me. It's like it was written so Arnie would like it. And I'm bored. And I'm sitting there like, oh, God, will this movie just move along? It was just so plotting. And when Jason killed people, they weren't even relevant to the plot. And I honestly would have preferred a movie with a lower body count where it made more sense and got to the point. I was so bored in this. It was well made. Part four was well made. Part five was not. But then six and on, we at least have good production values. And... It's got some plot holes, of course. I don't understand why they kept the cabin by the lake for the 10 years, and it's so clean. They didn't have to dust it or anything. The cat's there. But <laughs> Maybe the cat's oh. cleaning up. After. It's a magical oh. cabin. It just it comes and goes when needed. Maybe her psychic powers cleaned it before they got there. <laughs> yeah, it does think that's what happened. It's a drab movie. It yeah. is, uh, is drab. The word that I kept going to was like, there is just, it's so devoid of color, and these characters are unlikable, and it's just uh, this feel-bad aura to it. Like, you watch it, and the you feel, bad feel movie of the year. bad. You know, there's no sense of joy or fun to this at all. Like I said, the only time I even smiled was when the potted plant with the head in it like flew across the room. And hit Jason. Like, at no other time do you take a deliciously camp idea like Jason battling a psychic and make it anything close to fun. And, and how can you screw that up? I think they screwed it up because I think they got the wrong director. I think the director really thought he was going to make some kind of chilling, carry Freudian psychological thing and didn't care about the slasher element and didn't care about the camp value. And it just reflects a really a bizarre left turn in the series. Like It really feels the least to like a Friday the 13th movie of all the seven we watched. Adding a little of the humor for the six would have gone a long way in this one. Yeah, Very, very much so. My final thought on this one is I dug the Jason as back being menacing, but I really did not enjoy this movie. I didn't, didn't enjoy most things about it. And then, as I've already told you all, I'm just so down on this one. I did not like it. Well, I'm going to use my psychic powers to say that as much as we didn't enjoy this one, the next one's going to be worse. <laughs> I, I remember part eight and I remember not feeling fondly about it and uh, we'll just have to see I guess we'll have to find out in the next podcast thanks Arnie for your time thank you Stuart no problem and thanks for listening we'll talk to you soon thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th retrospective We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week, up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did, if you did, if you did, if you did. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.